0: What are the Marian dogmas held by Roman Catholics? What should Protestants know about these beliefs? This week on Theology Unplugged, we continue our discussion of Mariology. We're continuing to talk about Mary, Mariology as we've called it, or the Marian dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church in our series here on Roman Catholicism. Guys, um, we ended last time talking about the history of Mariology. I want to dig right now into the individual dogmas i know we touched last time on the immaculate conception and as sam explained it it has nothing to do with jesus's virgin birth but has everything to do with protecting mary so that she could be without sin i suppose so that she could give birth to jesus right yes so so Mm -hmm. we need we need her to be without sin in order for jesus to um be without sin now let's talk about that a little bit because tim Um, You said something about Mary saying that she was a sinner. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, and this is the point that Thomas Aquinas makes in the 13th century is how can Mary uh, be sinless when in Luke 1 she considers Jesus her savior? And so it it would appear that she would need a savior. She wouldn't need a savior if she's sinless. And so why does she refer to Jesus as her savior? Now now uh, some Roman Catholics would say, well, we're interpreting that word savior differently. You know so like if you've're in the credo house and you lose your keys and you're running all over the place looking for your keys and I find your keys and you come up you're like, oh man, you're a savior, thank you and you run out. Uh, I'm using, you're using Savior in a different way. And so I think that's a way that they would say is well she was using Savior in a different way than savior of her sins. But uh, for me, that's a stretch, because, I mean, this, we're talking about the Gospels here in Luke 1. Uh, you know, it seems like
0: Savior is related to sin in this context. Hmm. What about, I mean, I, I, you could say, and I've heard him use this, that we're all in a hole, right? Our sin, we're born in Adam, fallen into this hole. Catholics agree with us on the at least the doctrine of uh, original sin, so that we're born guilty. She's not born guilty. She's not born with imputed sin, and, and I suppose she's not born with a with an inherited nature of sin either. That's the sense in which I think most of them would predicate
2: uh, or would say that she referred to Jesus as her savior, that that had there not been this singular act of grace at the moment of her conception, she would have been conceived in original sin and would have been like us in the uh, committing acts of sin. We're from, all in a hole. It's from that he, he that he, that he saved her. Get fallen in the hole. Right. It's from that that he saved her. Almost it, like preemptive saving. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It is. The,
3: it, the catechism misapplies various scriptures to her, such as uh, the Father chose her in Christ for the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. JJ's a little bit antagonistic.
1: Yeah, isn't he? He's, I'm sensing some polemic. There's uh, something going on. There's there. an attitude <laughs> coming
0: from him. What's the history in your family, or can you yeah. tell me about your mom? Yeah, is it is it a dad wound? <laughs> it's, just, uh... <laughs>
3: it's, it's fascinating to see the almost arbitrary nature in which texts are, are lifted out of context
2: and applied. He's isn't he? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs>
1: He's like twisting the knife in a kind way, using bigger so, words. So, so what's Michael? What's... No, no, go ahead with that. No, I'm <laughs> serious.
2: What's the danger? in affirming the Immaculate Conception and the sinlessness of Mary? What, what, where, where, would that, where would that lead
0: us astray? What would it do? Why should Protestants be concerned? Sam always picks on me with his questions. Well, you're directly across the table. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here's what I would say. is Number one, there's no danger, but it's unnecessary to me because I, here's what I don't get, Sam. Um, number one, where does it come from? Number two, the, well, it's a theological issue, mm-hmm. but does it solve anything? I mean, in my mind, no, it doesn't. how do you protect now Mary's mother from sin? Mm-hmm. You know, and how do you protect her mother from sin? And why do you only go back one generation in order to preserve the womb from the fallen nature and not have to perpetually, pun, perpetually go back? for preserving everybody in her bloodline. Well,
2: And I, and I think an, another danger a threat is, and, and I think this probably contributes to the, uh, the way in which many Catholics view Mary, is if you have, uh, one of the reasons why we adore, love, and worship Jesus is because he was sinless, because he was able to live in a substitutionary way the life we should have but di- but haven't. Well, now you've just elevated another person to the level of sinlessness, Is it not just an invariable process of human nature that we're going to start elevating her as so unique and giving her prerogatives, privileges, and uh, uh, believing that she can accomplish things for us that another ordinary human being cannot? So I think there's the danger, once you predicate sinlessness of somebody, that they do begin to ascend, as it were, almost to the level of deity. And in some circles within Catholicism, but certainly not official Roman Catholic dogma, but in some circles there have been um, uh, tendencies toward elevating Mary almost to a semi-divine role in, in in redemption. And that, I think, is the great danger and the great threat. This is a good moment for us to remember that uh, many theologians have
3: compared uh, our, our system of beliefs to a web. You know, you sever any strand and the whole web sags and is affected. So every... Every biblical belief is connected to all the others, and we're not always able in a finite way to anticipate the ramifications of a particular belief being severed. But, but there are massive ripple effects through the whole ecosystem of Christian belief mm-hmm. when you begin to advance some of these extra biblical
0: ideas. Let me read from uh, Pius uh, Twelfth in 1950. By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostle Peter and Paul, By our own authority, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be divinely revealed dogma. Pause there. Divinely revealed dogma. Uh, Which is interesting because that's taken on the role of a prophet, it seems, at that point. Uh, That the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-virgin, having completed the course of our earthly life, was assumed bodily into heaven. Now, this is a new one. Let's talk about this for a moment. The what is, doc, what is the, this?
2: The doctrine of Mary's bodily assumption. Yeah. Yes.
0: 1950. Because um, I, I here you you connected, you connected the uh, perpetual virginity, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But right. I think this is vitally connected to the idea that Mary was sinless, right? Well, if she was sinless,
2: then why should she be subject to physical death, which Scripture presents as the penal consequence of sin? Well, if she has not committed any sin, she shouldn't be subject
0: to its penalty. So, I mean, the hole that we fell into, which included sin, the the identification with Adam, sin nature, and death, she completely avoids this hole. Yeah. Well, see, and, and he, see, my response would be, excuse me for just interrupting, if,
2: if in fact she was from the moment of her conception, free from the taint of original sin, there was no imputation of Adam's guilt. There was no sinful impulse in her flesh. She was not fallen or corrupt or morally depraved in any sense. Why would she have needed to die at all? Why would her body have, uh, uh, in some sense, deteriorated and been subject to the, the processes of, of
0: corruption that eventually would lead to physical death in the first place? And so this this doctrine, which didn't arise until the 5th century, I mean, this is a very late, we don't find a trace of the assumption of Mary, that she was either before death, some people have shortly after death, which I don't understand that, but before death is probably the better theological understanding of it, assumed into heaven because she had never sinned. Yeah, that's important. Can I interrupt? Yeah.
2: You brought up a distinction. Some Catholics believe that Mary never died, that like unto what, Enoch? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Old Testament. She was simply assumed into heaven before physical death. Others say, no, she did die, but before there was an opportunity for any decay or corruption of um, uh, of the flesh, she was immediately glorified. And so she is in a glorified body now in the presence of, of her son.
0: Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing is, is that this one, this is one of those ones where I say, man, this is really pushing it because Uh, You've got to be able to defend—if you're not going to defend it from the Bible, which, remember, Catholics don't have to because they've got unwritten tradition that's just as authoritative, you've got to be able to find it pretty significantly in church history and early enough to justify it. And this is one of those that even Catholics would admit, we don't really have anything of this until the 5th century. And so it's like, how in the world does this bust on the scene— Uh, you know, 5th century and not really even get talked about much more until the 12th century and then not dogmatized until 1950, how does this become a dogma that is essential to believe for a Catholic and something that is part of the deepest, richest traditions of the faith? Well, it all relates to something we talked about in our very
2: beginning of this series, and it's the Roman Catholic concept of authoritative revelation. It's not just what is deposited in Scripture. It's what the Spirit of God supposedly leads the church to infer from what is in Scripture. And so, again, if we we believe in the Immaculate Conception, of course for which we have no biblical grounds, then it seems only reasonable. In fact, if I believed in the Immaculate Conception, I would believe in the bodily assumption. I think they go hand in glove. Mm -hmm. So again, it's the Roman Catholic notion that God can continue to speak and uh, disclose truth beyond uh, explicit biblical assertions, and these are simply necessary consequences in their way of thinking. Well, because we would, even, we
1: would even agree that the Bible does not speak on everything. So the Bible did not communicate every single detail of Jesus' life, every single detail of Mary's life. So even uh, Pope Pius the XII goes on to say, he says, it was she, Mary, the second Eve, who free from all sin— original and personal, and always most intimately united with her son, offered him on Golgotha to the Eternal Father for all the children of Adam. So when I read that as a Roman Catholic, I say, God communicated something to Pope Pius Twelfth that, that God filled in some details and filled in some gaps for me. And so I, I hold that as equally true as scripture. And now I have to try and figure out in my theology, okay, how exactly did Mary offer Jesus and how exactly was she free from these things? Uh, because, uh, because
2: of how I'm viewing the, the Pope's authority. And also, we should make sure we our listeners understand, it was by virtue of her bodily assumption that the Roman Catholic refers to Mary as the queen of heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, the queen, uh, in the Catholic catechism, she's called the queen over all things by virtue of her bodily assumption.
0: I wonder if you can escape as a Catholic and just, you know, say, yeah, I'm a Catholic and I'm committed, but I don't like the Mary thing that much, and you know, I believe in it, but it's not part of my worship, It's not part of my life. Uh, it's not part of, you know, uh, whenever I go to mass or anything like that. Is she so integrated that it has to be a part of your Catholic worship now? Does Mary have to be there? Like, I mean, and one of the saints doesn't, you know, uh, the uh, that we'll talk about. I think we'll talk about sometime the saints.
2: Yeah, I think it, I think it does. I mean, you, if you not, if not, then you're going to have to chuck a lot of very central Roman Catholic dogma, everything from the infallibility of the Pope to the authority of the magisterium, the teaching office of Rome. Well, you have to say these things. I mean, Hail Mary, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah
3: you, it, have to, you have to reject the homework your priest gives you to, uh, to do penance for your sin. He's going to tell you to pray to her as, the, as part of being restored to intimacy
2: with the Father. Huh. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, um, Catholic Catechism, paragraph 969, listen to what it says. Quote, taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix.
3: And again, we'll understand how all these hang together in the web if we understand how they're all a mirror image of Jesus' work. Why did he ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father in order to carry on intercession for us? And so... Uh, she's sinless, uh, then, then she's uh, singular in holiness, and then she's ascending before the Father to intercede for her. These, these are Jesus' jobs.
2: But, and again, uh, excuse me, the Hebrews 7, uh, He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to Him by faith, not to her or to Him through her, but to Him. And that's one of the central teachings of Scripture that is lost once you elevate Mary to this role of co-redemptrix or intercessor or advocate.
3: So, and I don't mention yeah. those things out of irritation, but simply to say that there's an internal logic. Uh, it's internally a thousand miles off, but it's internally consistent. If she is possessed of one virtue, it would make sense that she is possessed of the others uh, because that's how be. Jesus
0: works. Mm-hmm. I think. Okay. Hey, they, hey, hey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, l- 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 go back. To Tim's I, been trying to get in I've a word I've been trying here. to get a point <laughs> in. That's okay. Uh, uh, first, let's, let's get this. And Tim, I'll let you do this. All right. Okay. What is, what is this third one, the uh, perpetual virginity? I think it's completely a different category, so that's why. Now, should I I be a politician and spin and talk about what I was going to talk about? Uh, No, because I'll just (laughs) interrupt you again.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this is just a, a concept. I think of uh, for me, this isn't a, a big deal as the other ones are, uh, but it is this idea that Mary was was a virgin her whole life. That that was part of you know she her role was to uh, give birth to Jesus and not to. Uh, so they'll view how Jesus had brothers and sisters, which would appear would view that as not being Mary giving birth to biological children. That she was protected for for this uh, perpetual virginity. Why? Why does she need yeah. to be a
0: virgin?
2: Yeah, I I actually uh, have a lot more energy when it comes to this one even oh, okay. than to the others. Good, good. <laughs> Energize <laughs> even, away. Bro. Even though, and and this this baffles a lot of Protestants to realize. Even though, as we mentioned in the first uh, program on this uh, subject, that Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, and some believe John Wesley affirmed the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, there was a dispute in the early Middle Ages, like ninth century or so, about how she. And the, I ought to probably ought to yield a chair to Tim here, since he kind of uses the graphic language associated with childbirth. <laughs> okay, just but, whisper it to me, and I'll. Uh, turn but uh, it into there was something. a debate about how Jesus actually was born, and some said if he actually, um, and I, I'm not going to use the term technical language, but if he was actually. Um, birth birth birthed, canal. You can use birth, birth canal. Birth canal is <laughs> in fine. the normal natural way. That's a very med- that this medical somehow term. would have violated her virginity, and so the argument came that, in a sense, Jesus kind of he was in the womb of Mary, and then he just suddenly materialized outside the womb of Mary. not, very, even, not even a C-section. Huh? No, not even a C-section. No scars, um, and he just simply materialized outside the womb in order to quote unquote preserve intact her virginal purity. And so, why do we need her virginal purity,
3: though? I mean... Let's, uh, listen to the Catechism, paragraph 499, the deepening of faith, there's that progressive revelation piece, the deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did
2: not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. Huh. I, I, but I'm going to get back to answer your question. I have a serious problem with this for several reasons. Number one, because I think I have explicit biblical evidence that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Um, and the attempt to suggest these were his cousins uh, doesn't hold water because the word cousin, which we find in the book of Colossians, for example, is nowhere applied to these individuals. Uh, and then there's the argument, well, maybe Joseph was married before and he had these kids and he brought them into uh, you know, it was a blended family, so to speak, in yeah. the ancient world. There, there's no—that's pure conjecture. Um,
3: Sam, furthermore, Sam, how, the, the, do, you, how they, do you answer their question—their their, their claim that uh, James and Joseph, quote-unquote brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, who, who they say Matthew calls the other Mary. And that explains that these are
2: not—how how do you answer that? I've never that? heard that one. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's just an, it's an, an
0: assertion without evidence. Uh, that's all. It's... He's trying to solve something for a reason, though. Right. That's what I'm trying to get to. Why do we have to have her virgin? Well, because it is there
2: is the belief that for her to be singularly unique and holy, she must not engage in sexual relations. There is a, almost a Gnostic dimension to there this that demeans the human body, and the gift of human sexuality that God has granted to a husband and wife to enjoy. Uh, it gets back a little bit to the whole Roman Catholic concept of you don't have sex unless there is the intent to conceive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, so, and chastity of priests as well. Exactly. There is a diminishing of the beauty and the glory and the joy of
0: physical union of a man and woman. Well, it was, it was Theodore of Mopsustia. I just... I love. He's, he's one of your out favorites, out. He's isn't he? Really but he he was the one who, in the early church, one of the only ones who understood Song of Solomon to be a love story between Solomon and his wife and, and have sexual implications instead of the symbolic love story between Christ and the church. Now, this kind of goes back to your stuff, Tim, Irenaeus, Gnosticism, you brought up Gnosticism. It seemed to be the whole culture of the first century. If we're going to elevate Mary we've got to keep her pure and sinless and, you know, even, uh, you know, necessary evils, Augustine said, uh, sex was in order to create children. You had this whole environment where if you had sex, it was not really good, right? And so you got Mary, and you got to keep her the best. And is that where it came from? Yeah, largely so. Yeah,
2: and the the tragedy in this, and um, I don't want this to be offensive to our Roman Catholic listeners, but seriously, I want them to think about this. In my opinion, if Mary remained a virgin throughout her life, she was a wretched woman, depriving her husband of the very blessing and joy that marriage is designed to bring. I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, do not deprive one another. Um, Furthermore, if we affirm the perpetual virginity of Mary, we have to affirm the perpetual virginity of Joseph. Uh, But that doesn't seem to factor largely into Roman Catholic dogma. I just think it is an inordinate, bizarre, unnatural, and obviously ultimately unnecessary concept that that is very uh, denigrating to the image of Mary. I I think she's been elevated as this woman who yielded to God and submitted to His law and obeyed Him wholeheartedly. Well, if she did, then she would have obeyed the biblical responsibilities to fulfill your uh, physical um, obligation to your spouse. And it just seems to me to to render her a wretch. In, a, in the very serious sense of that term, for her to have gone through her life depriving her husband of the blessings, uh, one of the blessings for which marriage was designed. That brought down the gauntlet, didn't it? I did. I think it's good, though. I
1: mean, that'll preach for sure, because I think, uh, you know, if we see Mary as being this godly woman, which everything shows that she is very godly, and uh, and then when we look at it, it, does very much seem in Scripture a plain reading of the Gospels that that Jesus does have brothers and sisters. You know, they're outside waiting, and I mean, it just seems really—I mean, so everything would seem that Mary would have been a godly wife and that uh, sexuality wouldn't have been anything to be afraid of because God made it. and he made it in a way that it's it's a beautiful thing inside of marriage. And so, I mean, I think just a plain reading and plain reasoning would suggest that Mary and Joseph had a fulfilling sexual relationship within
3: marriage, which is exactly how God created it to be. Well, just to be clear, the only textual argument they make in the catechism is that Matthew 28, verse 1, Mary Magdalene and quote-unquote the other Mary went to see the tomb. And so Catholics believe that's somehow significant, that uh, James and Joseph are sons of the other Mary, and the fact that Matthew calls her the other Mary means there's another Mary. Which starts to then seem really
1: not righteous
3: too. I mean, it, it seems like a Mary
1: instead was surrounded by this thing that would be on a daytime talk show you know, Matthew 13,
0: is this not the carpenter's son? Is this is his mother, not Mary, are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Every translation I've got says and brothers. The and brothers then again, in, uh, in Mark 6,
2: 3, the parallel, and are not his sisters here with us? So um, it just seems to me you, you've got to do some real exegetical gymnastics to,
0: to jump okay, over guys, these. Listen, uh, I want to talk a little bit now about the implications, because I know we would all agree, and let's be fair. No Roman Catholic would say we worship Mary or we should worship Mary, Right but there does seem to be these types of things that go on in the culture, apprehensions and things that you see Mary and that you pray to her and that's who appears as a savior all the time.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, you say, no Roman Catholic would say we worship Mary, but there is a very fine line between veneration and worship, or veneration and what adoration. Is that line? It's the line between, well, she's only human and we worship God alone. But in actual practice, if you, actually, uh, if you go down to the Shrine of Guadalupe, Mexico City, if you observe other, uh, the way in which some Catholics um, speak of Mary and to Mary, uh, you would be very hard-pressed to differentiate between paying honor to someone and actually elevating them to a place of um, deserving of worship. And,
1: and I think part of this is the there is a movement in Roman Catholicism called maximalists or minimalists, and all Roman Catholics must hold to the Immaculate Conception, the Perpetual Virginity. These are official teachings that you must hold to, but a maximist will maximize those things where Mary does seem to be a co-redeemer, uh, where a minimalist will agree to those things but uh, will speak a little bit lower and, not, and would never say that they're worshiping Mary. Uh, and so even within Roman Catholicism, I think there's disagreement on how much uh, we venerate
3: or worship Mary. The language of the catechism is that, that the church ought to, quote, entrust supplications and praises to her. And then it also talks about how the treasury of good works that's available to people includes the prayers and good works of Mary. They are, quote, truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. Okay,
0: so then we've just got one minute here, but uh, worship, okay, if you pray to someone who's dead, right? I mean, I don't know if you necessarily have to say that's worship. If you bow down to someone, I mean, isn't that what the New Testament often uses the word worship, prostrate yourself before Mm -hmm. in in the sense, so you've got somebody who has died, you're praying to, has power, and um, is, uh, you're bowing down to. I mean, Where's that line? Did we say no? We're not worshiping. Once we worship, we would do what? Yeah, and then let's add one dimension to
2: that. If once you cross the line in where you are trusting in a particular individual to supply or provide or somehow grant to you blessings that are essential to your reconciliation with God and your experience in growth and grace hmm. it seems as if you're really teetering on the fence there and about to fall over into the side of
0: uh, of worship yeah interesting uh interesting topic I mean I, I think I I don't think I have a handle on it exactly still <laughs> but at least uh, at least I understand that all of us have these difficulties with uh, with particular doctrine there but uh, we'll continue this discussion on Roman Catholicism next week. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit www.credohouse.org.